This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's kind of a gruesome picture, isn't it? But I like to imagine Darwin in the dissecting room actually helping us all out. So this is a lecture that's an experiment for me. It's shifting the focus. All of my previous lectures about evolution and medicine have been about traits, things like height and pneumonia and cancer and all the rest. Today I'm going to shift gears and try to apply the things we've learned about how to analyze why traits are vulnerable to disease and ask instead why genes that cause disease persist in the genome despite the actions of natural selection. Evolutionary medicine, just to be very clear, is not a specialized method of practice. There's nothing alternative about it whatsoever. It's simply applying the well-established basic principles from evolutionary biology to medicine and public health and trying to use them to improve human health. So the central question I've been preoccupied by is why bodies have traits that link them vulnerable to disease? Completely different from the usual medical research question. Most medical research is about why people are different. Our interest is instead about why we are all the same in ways that are kind of like the gas tank on the Pinto. Um, there are things that, about our bodies from our backs to our appendices. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. The first half of medical school, you must react with awe if you're paying attention at all. Um, the loop of Henley in the kidney, no details now, but oh my gosh, if you're not astounded, you're not paying attention. Everybody recognizes how great the heart is and the valves in the right place at the right time, and the pump does not need to be oiled every few months. Um, the eye is miraculous in the fact of its astounding function, although it's actually not well designed. Um, the human hand is almost equally good in terms of all of those muscles and tendons and, and joints working in tandem to allow us to do amazing things. Um, the clotting mechanism had better work well or else. And then the part of biology that I thought was absolutely ridiculous and stupid and at least made me mad when I was a medical student and now I find fascinating because of taking an evolutionary viewpoint is biochemistry and intermediary metabolism. <laughs> For any students in the audience, I assure you, don't pay attention to your professors. Go to evolutionary thinking about these things, and it will make sense. That's the first half of medical school. Second half, you get into the clinic, and what do you see? Somebody goofed. You start off with the wisdom teeth. Why? You go further to the appendix. Whoa. You go further to the place in your arm that always breaks when you fall forward. Why isn't it bigger? The coronary arteries, couldn't they just be a little bit wider, please? And as for that birth canal... Um, why not just have a zipper in the front instead of... Uh, it's, it's, it's. And then there's the spine, as I mentioned before. I mean, the body could be so much better in so many different ways. These are traits, not genes, just traits. And the old answer about why natural selection didn't do a better job is, well, it's a random process and it's not that strong. That is absolutely one important contribution to why bodies aren't better, but it's only one. And a foundation for evolutionary thinking in medicine has been to analyze every kind of vulnerability of a trait in terms of six possible different evolutionary reasons why we're vulnerable. I'm going to list them very quickly. I mean, I've given many, many lectures about these applying to traits. They're on the web if you're interested. Today I'm going to zip through them and apply them to genes. One is natural selection just can't do it. Two is we're living in an environment very different from the environment in which we evolved. Three is that pathogens, bacteria and viruses, evolve faster than we do. Four is trade-offs. Nothing can be perfect. Everything can be adjusted in ways that are better, but at the cost of making something else worse. 
Five, and this is a deep one, natural selection does not shape any organism for health or longevity or happiness or cooperation. It shapes all of them for maximizing their ability to transmit their genes. Very disturbing idea. The last is useful defenses that seem like diseases, such as fever, pain, nausea, vomiting, cough, and all the rest. Now I'm going to shift, though, my usual talk and give up on talking about traits and ask about genes, the focus of so much modern medical research, and ask, why do genes at increased risk of disease persist? And the first thing I recognized as I started down this path is that we don't need to just talk about the usual foci of medical research, which are the myriad kinds of specific variations in genes that make us vulnerable to disease. We also need to talk about genes that we all share that are fixed. Fixed means we all have it, that make us vulnerable to disease. This led me to just say there's four different kinds of genes we should be thinking about. First are the regular ones, widespread variation, all the regular genetic studies. Two, variation between populations. Dark is a gene that almost everyone in Africa has because it protects against vivax malaria. Hardly anyone living in northern climates has this gene. Fixed or missing genes for everybody recently, recently the past few million years. Um, the one that Ajit Varki studies, uh, NU5GC and GLOW, um, more about those in just a moment. The fourth category is genes that we all have, such as genes that make bilirubin and genes that make dopamine, all of which make us vulnerable to disease. So a big shift in thinking here, not just variations among individuals and their different genes, but genes that we all have that make us vulnerable to disease. The first reason, limits of selection. A lot of selection can't do things. And the biggest limit to selection is mutations happen. About 60 to 130 per individual per generation. And a deep question for another time is how on earth the genome can fail to melt down given the difficulty of getting rid of each of those. But they are all gradually selected out by natural selection, except that natural selection is by no means all powerful. There's something that geneticists call drift, which is really referring to random factors that make genes become more or less common just by luck of the draw, not because of anything pushing them to higher or lower frequencies. This can result in good genes being lost and bad genes becoming more common. Here is the biggest question that faces us in medical genetics today. We all thought just about 15 years ago that the highly heritable diseases such as schizophrenia, autism, bipolar disease, and all things like diabetes and all the rest, that they were highly heritable. We know their variation in these diseases is caused by genetic variations. So we should be able to find the genes and fix these diseases. This has been one of the greatest disappointments in modern medicine. We're making some progress, but it was a huge disappointment. This is a graph um, done by one of my former students and his colleagues looking at genes for schizophrenia. I say genes, what I really mean for the technically inclined is alleles, that is different variations that influence risk of something like schizophrenia. These are ones that are relatively uncommon, and they have relatively large effects, increasing the risk of schizophrenia by as much as five to 10 times. But they're very, very rare. These are alleles that are relatively common, and their effect on schizophrenia is really quite tiny. They increase the risk by 1% or 2% or 3%. Notice that they all fall on the same line. Notice next that there are no genes over there. There are no effects. There are no common genes of large effect. What happened to them? Natural selection eliminated them is the main hypothesis. 
But more important here, all of these genes have the exact same proportion of variance explained. And that proportion of variance is 0.04%, which is a teensy, teensy, teensy amount of explanation. This has been terribly frustrating. A gene that causes less than 5% of 5% is not going to get you very far in terms of explaining these diseases. Sickle cell disease has been the exemplar for evolutionary medicine, but I'd like to suggest to you it's a very poor exemplar. It's interesting because of the mechanism that maintains the frequency of the alleles that cause sickle cell disease. It was first discovered, actually, in part by people, colleagues of mine at Michigan, Jim Neal and his colleagues, and they pointed out that when they went to Africa and looked at the distribution of malaria and the distribution of sickle cell disease, it was about the same. And then they thought about it more deeply in a genetic way and recognized something that's called balancing selection. This maintains the frequency of the alleles that cause sickle cell disease. You have to have two of them to get the sickle cell disease at a certain frequency. If you have two regular hemoglobin copies, you're vulnerable to malaria, but you don't get sickle cell disease. If you have two of the sickle cell kinds of hemoglobin, you get severe disease, often dying young, and usually not being able to reproduce. But if you have one of each, and you're living in Africa where their malaria is common, or around the Mediterranean where it's common, it's not just Africa, um, you get some malaria protection and the anemia is not too severe. These people do better in terms of having more offspring than these or these. And this means that so long as that gene isn't too common, if it gets too common, then a lot of people get two copies and it's terrible. If it's really rare, no benefit, but middle range. Fascinating example, but again, it's not a great example um, because what natural selection does when these kinds of things happen is find some other solution. This has only been going on for 10 to 20,000 years, and we don't have very many other examples of balancing selection. I say this because so many of my colleagues, especially in psychiatry, are constantly making up stories about possible traits like schizophrenia, for instance, resulting from heterozygote advantage or balancing selection. There's really not much evidence for that except for other kinds of hemoglobinopathies that protect against malaria. There are a few others, but it's not a common explanation. It shouldn't be the exemplar. Something that should be, though, is something like dopamine. You probably are all aware that dopamine in the substantia nigra and the brain and basal ganglia, um, if you don't have enough of it and your neurons are dying off, you get Parkinson's disease. It's common. Why are we vulnerable to Parkinson's disease? Well, it turns out that it's inherent to the nature of the dopamine molecule. When it's metabolized, the dopamine molecule makes hydrogen peroxide and other oxygen radicals. These things, whenever they glom onto a piece of tissue, fry it, essentially. Dopamine is an inherently toxic molecule, and we're not going to be able to replace it because it's been used to regulate motivation systems for about a billion years now. No, no chance of changing that, but it's also inherently dangerous. There are built-in protection mechanisms in those nerves to protect them against the effects of dopamine, and when those aren't work, working quite right for one reason or another, people get Parkinson's disease. Second explanation, mismatch with the environment. We used to think that common diseases were caused by common genes and we would find them. But that turned out not to be the case. Hardly any common diseases are caused by common genes that are large effects. Most disease genes that have large effects are what George Williams and I have called quirks. Quirks are not defective. They're genes that have bad effects only in modern environments. And this leads to the paradoxical finding that most highly heritable diseases are caused by the environment. Doesn't that sound odd? 
Quirks, harmless in a natural environment, cause disease in a novel environment. Uh, Ken Weiss, a geneticist, says the widespread desertion of these common risk alleles, they're benign. So if the, the, the proves they're benign, so if they're associated with disease, this means that they're interacting with modern environments to causing disease, pointing the finger to the environment. So the next time the New York Times says, we found a gene for um, uh, atherosclerosis, that's, it's probably a gene that didn't do much harm back in the environments of the sort that Mike Gervin has been studying. It's a gene that interacts with Big Macs to cause heart attacks. Nearsightedness. Whether you're nearsighted or not depends almost entirely on your genes. So why didn't natural selection get rid of them? Answer, hardly anyone is nearsighted in ancestral environments. Something about modern environments boosts the rate so that everybody who has those genes gets nearsighted. Three candidates for that. One is doing close work. Two is high doses of sugar. Three, low levels of light because of living indoors. Yet to discover exactly what this is, we could eventually cure or prevent nearsightedness if we could find the answer. Scurvy. Our ancestors didn't have scurvy because they made their own ancestors back a few million years. Um, they made their own vitamin C, but we lost the ability to make vitamin C, and we lost it right about here. Um, owl, monkeys, marmosets, and humans and gorillas, we can't make it. Lemurs and others can. Why did that ability get lost? One hypothesis has been that it's just because we had so much fruit in our diet, it didn't matter. And that's a perfectly plausible one. But other people have suggested that changes in this particular enzyme increase our ability to store fats. Very interesting to try to answer that question. Third reason is infection. Pathogens evolve faster than we do. It's too bad, and it's amazing that we can ever, ever outrun them. Therefore, there's very strong selection to survive whatever kinds of pathogens and infections are around. But whenever you see a mutation that gets selected so strongly to prevent infection, you should look very carefully to see if there might be bad side effects to that gene. It turns out that there's lots of evidence about this. A nice recent paper goes through many of them, shows pretty convincingly that each epidemic shapes quite dramatic changes in allele frequencies. And furthermore, it points out that CCR5, um, you get HIV protection if you have this particular mutation, but you're more vulnerable to West Nile. If you have an O blood type, you get protection against malaria, but you're more vulnerable to cholera. We need to not think about good genes and bad genes. We need to be thinking about variations that have costs and benefits. Trade-offs. Nothing in the body is perfect. Everything is a trade-off. My favorite example is bilirubin. Why make bilirubin? It's toxic. It turns you yellow. Turns out it's wonderful at stopping reactive oxygen species from burning up your tissues. And if people who have a disease causing high bilirubin levels have heart attacks at half the rate of others, very important for practical terms in a neonatal nursery where kids are routinely put under lights for even mild increases of bilirubin, even though that bilirubin decreases the number of reactive oxygen species in their bodies. Genes for aging, George Williams pointed out a new explanation, that is, they might have benefits in childhood when uh, selection is strong and costs only later in life, the so-called antagonistic pleiotropy theory. If, in fact, we could eliminate aging and the mortality rate stayed the same throughout life as it is at age 20, most of us would live to about age 800 to 1,000. Amyloid beta is the bad guy for causing Alzheimer's disease, but it's demonstrated recently that, in fact, it's a potent antimicrobial 
Every single one of these genes seems like it's just a bad actor, but it's there for a reason. Not all are. We shouldn't assume it, but we should consider the possibilities. And then Ajit Varki's work, he's shown that all humans are missing a gene that our primate ancestors all had. That is one for new 5GC, and it turns out that two or three million years ago we lost it, but we keep eating other foods that have that in it, and it may well be that, causing it, that, that that causes inflammatory reactions, which might be responsible for the high burden of inflammatory disease in humans. It might be that the reason that happened was to help us avoid uh, the kind of malaria that influences chimpanzees, because that molecule is what, chimpanz- is what the malaria pathogen uses to get into blood cells. Reproduction can increase uh, change can increase reproduction and harm health. Um, APOE4 increases progesterone and reproduction, even though it causes heart attacks and Alzheimer's disease. Even the BRCA gene causing breast cancer has been said to increase number of offspring. And finally, defenses such as pain, fever, and all the rest are useful, but at a high cost. Wrapping up, why do disease genes persist? The same six categories that proved so useful in trying to understand why certain traits are vulnerable to causing disease helps us to understand genetic variations and genetic uniformities in ways that make us vulnerable to disease. Constraints leave us with mutations and heterozygote advantage vulnerabilities. Mismatch results in quirks that were harmless now causing disease. Trade-offs come with benefits but costs. Pathogens create arm races. Reproduction sometimes shapes changes in genes that increase reproduction at a cost to health, and defenses are dangerous and costly. Again, going back to four different kinds of genes, variations among individuals, variations among human subgroups, recent changes that we all have, such as losing the ability to synthesize vitamin C, and then other things like dopamine that we all have had for a very long time. We need to be thinking about all these different kinds of genes and their ways in which they make us vulnerable to disease. This exercise of writing this lecture was fun for me because it came out with surprising conclusions I hadn't anticipated. First, there's a very high proportion of disease vulnerability genes that are shaped by benefits of protecting against infection. And two, they persist because of selection for infection, increasing reproduction, and extending the lifespan. Those of you who are interested, we now do have a scientific society, evolutionary medicine. It's called the International Society for Evolution, Medicine, Public Health. We have a meeting in Europe um, that you'd be welcome to go. EvMedEd is a resource. And EvMedReview.com offers news for the field, including right now a meeting that's open for anyone who wants to attend November 10th in Berlin and information about jobs at ASU. Thanks very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.